turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. What I have just distributed to you that's making it around the table is an introductory remarks about the book of 1 John. It is the more uh, deeper theological issues as far as uh, authority, date. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's uh, a book within the Bible uh, and of its greater meaning. Uh, it's a general letter. It's a circular letter for uh, uh, the church, not just a, a people that are just a single people. It talks about it's, it is written by uh, John the Apostle who also wrote the Gospel of John. And so there's some really interesting things in there. And of course, you know, there are a few passages in First John that are uh, very disturbing to some in the sense of like if the sin unto death, if you have sinned the sin unto death, that's in, that's in that discussion. Also, there is the, you know, no believer who's, who is saved continues in sin. Well, what does that mean? And uh, so um, all of that you'll want to read and study up on. What I would recommend you do is get a notebook like I have. I start a brand new notebook, um, spiral bound or whatever. I will give you the handouts and uh, uh, take notes from the messages, what I have up here. This is going to be a very... Uh, a very applicable uh, series of messages for you. It's going to be different. You'll see it's very different, uh, but we will do an exposition. The whole point of the book of 1 John is to uh, strengthen your assurance of salvation. But when you read it, you almost go, how in the world could I be saved? And so with that in mind, you have this concept of, of, uh, of having to rely upon grace as you read it because I do believe personally 1 John is the hardest book in the, in the New Testament. But it, when, you, when you read it from the standpoint of assurance, then it's, it's magnificent. So I want to pray and we're going to just jump into this and uh, I think that you'll, you'll benefit greatly from it. Father, I ask you in the name of Christ Jesus to... Um, honor us, Lord, uh, with uh, the Spirit speaking truth into our hearts, Father, that we may receive it in our intellect and our reason and our identity, that we may pick up on these things and be encouraged by them and moved by them. We pray, Father, for uh, the testimony of the Word that it gives to us and that indeed it would strengthen our faith and uh, to be more fit uh, Father, to be able to stand not only uh, in the shifting sands of our culture where even the winds have turned against our faith, but, Father, that having stand, we can stand all the more because we are certain of where we stand and whom we stand and how long we'll stand. We ask your blessings on the teaching of the Word. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want you to look at 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5 and uh, verse 13 is the, is the major verse of the entire book. And it is the book, it is this verse that I want to spend our time tonight on. Uh, and I want to give you my uh, theory about this study 
as I'm going to show you. Would you mind turning that off for me? It is my theory. It is my theory. As a believer, a believer will not feel threatened if said believer is certain of eternal salvation and lives for Jesus Christ in grace and in truth. It is my theory a believer will not feel threatened if said believer is certain of his or her eternal salvation and lives for Jesus Christ in grace and truth. Now, I have some Latin words up here that are important for you to know the English meaning. The first thing is this that I'm just going to share with you at the moment. If y'all want to come around, we have other chairs so you can watch and pull up and hear. Truett, would you help them? And uh, tell George and Jean, and uh, they're hiding in a corner. Um, sumum, sumum bonum is highest good. Okay? Well, highest good. All right, now this is an important term, the summum bonum. What do you know is the highest good? The highest good, of course, is Jesus Christ. He is the summum bonum. Just remember that word. And so he says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Now notice first two words, these things. He says right there in verse 13, he says, These things. These things speak to what he has previously uh, mentioned. They encompass the entire letter. And it is evident from, for several considerations. And here is the first thing considering these things. Number one, look at verse 12. He says, He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. He has used all three persons in speech. He uses the he, which is a, a third person. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son does not have life. So he's using the third person he. But notice in verse 13, he goes to the second person, to you. He trans... He... Uh, he... he uh, he changes. What does this mean? When he writes these things, what he is saying is that verse 13 is not merely uh, continuing a thought from the previous verse. These things are referring to everything he has already written. And that means this, the second thing, 1 John chapter 1, verse 4. Look what it says. 1 John 1, 4. 1 John 1, 4, it says, These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. So you have from 1 John chapter 1, verse 4 to 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, contains the these things. In, North, in redneck language, them things. Okay? These things. So these things are from chapter 1, verse 4 to chapter 5, verse 12. These things I have written to you who believe. So the purpose of the, of the writing is this. 
It is the assurance of eternal life that produces the fullness of joy. You need to write that down. The assurance of eternal life is what produces the fullness of joy. Okay? That has a lot to do with what these other words are up here. Okay? I'll show you that in a moment. But that's the point. That is the point of the whole book. Assurance of eternal life is what produces the fullness of joy. And then I said there was a third thing under these things. There is a strong parallel between verse 13 and what John writes in his gospel in John chapter 20. Go over here and look at that. John chapter 20, verse 23, 31. Verse 31. John chapter 20, verse 31. The God, so you have... The Gospel of John and the Epistles of John. The Epistles of John are not his wives. Apostles, the Epistles are the wives. Okay, I guess I've told that enough that it's not funny anymore. So we're, you're looking at the Gospel of John now, John chapter 20, verse 31, and he says this, But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. So in the Gospel of John, he talks about believing in Jesus for life. In the epistle of 1 John, he talks about the assurance of salvation for the fullness of joy. So what do you have here? There's a link, and the link is this. In John chapter 20, everything that John has said in John chapter 20 refers back to what he started with in John chapter 1. Just like he repeats here grammatically and stylistically, he is concluding his epistle referring back to everything that he has previously written in that epistle. He, he has not changed his spots. So if you want to write something down as a parallel expression, it's this. John wrote the gospel of John so that people might believe and be saved. John wrote the gospel of John so that people might believe and be saved. He wrote the first epistle to those who believe so that they may know they are saved. John is the gospel, how to believe and be saved. First John, the epistle, is how the believers know they are saved, not how to be saved, how they know they are saved. Okay? And so, as has been clear throughout, the blessings of salvation and assurance are for those who believe in the name of the Son of God, as it says in the text. Notice it says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So, let me just have you look over here at chapter 3, verse 23. 1 John 3.23. 1 John 3.23. Here he says, This is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. So having entered the Christian life through the gospel that is God-given and the faith that comes by the same, for by grace you're saved through faith, not of yourself. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. 
Christians can therefore draw assurance from the reality that they will, listen to me, they will never stop believing in the name of the Son of Jesus and the Son of God, Jesus Christ. If you are born again, you will never stop believing. Why? Because for by grace you've been saved through faith, not of your what? Self. It is the what? Of who? So that no man may boast. All right? So if a person stops believing, what does that mean? Well, let's look at it from this standpoint. I don't want to get ahead of myself because this is logically set out in my head. You all probably, like myself, have at one point or many points in your life doubted your salvation. However, that is normal for a Christian. But what is also normal for a Christian is this. A Christian may doubt his or her salvation, but they have no doubt who the source of it is. And that's the sign of belief. Jesus is the source of salvation. People that doubt their salvation, it can be one of two reasons. One, they have a reason to doubt it because they don't have it. Or number two, they are believers who are not walking the way they should and so they don't feel the joy that comes in the strong relationship with the Lord. But there's at no point where they do not believe that the source of their assurance comes from Jesus Christ. That's the difference. Not having assurance of faith does not make you more saved or less saved. But again, that's why these Latin words are up here. Because this all has to do with how we relate to the society that we live in and the culture that we live in that's in total chaos where truth is absolutely being undermined. And so what we talk about here is that saving faith contains therefore uh, three inseparable and essential elements. And I'm not going to go through all of this just because it you need to hear it, it's because it's necessary to understand John, what he's writing. John has reiterated all throughout this epistle, as we are going to learn when we begin to study it in depth, is he has taught faith, love, and eagerness for obedience. All through this epistle, he talks about faith, love, and eagerness for obedience. And in that handout I gave you on the last page is the outline I am going to use to preach this book. That is it. You're going to see there's tests and it has to do with faith and love and eagerness. You're going to see all of that. So in this verse where he says, believe in the name of his son, right here in, in 1 John 3.23, he, it's translated in the aorist tense, which means this. It's the Greek word pestuo, but it means this. It refers to the point in time when a person began to believe, but it produces a continuing result. That's why I told you a moment ago that those who truly believe that have been given the gift of faith 
through grace that is not of themselves. Those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ savingly will not ever stop believing because the word that is used here is in the aorist. The English does nothing for us here. But it means this, it, there was a point in time where you savingly believed and you will continue to believe as the byproduct of the grace that has been placed in you. Your belief does not hold that grace. <clears throat> the grace is the gift. No, the grace is given because the faith is the gift. <clears throat> okay, so notice the act produces a continuing result that lasts for the remainder of the believer's life. Guess what? In heaven, you're still going to be believing. The only difference is you're going to get to see. Faith, when faith gives way to sight, it says, and it is well with my soul. Right? The clouds be rolled back as a scroll, blah, blah, blah. The object of faith is therefore the name of Jesus Christ that is mentioned in this text. He this is His commandment that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, I don't like the way that's said in English. I don't want to believe in a name. I want to believe in a person. But that's why we have to go back and look at the original language. And it means this. The word name, listen to this, by using this when John the Revelator, who remember, John is the one that is revealing to the world, the Greek world, that Jesus, or the whole world, that Jesus is God and He loves you. So in His gospel, He paints the broadest picture of Jesus Christ to the world in ways that the, the world would understand more clearly than perhaps just a Roman or a Greek or a Hebrew. Okay, And so we're talking about Gentile lost people, obviously. And so here's the idea. When He speaks of the name, he is speaking of the full identity of who Jesus Christ is. We know this because it is used another place in the Bible. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, it says, And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Right? Weus. Christos, Soter, Kurios is Lord. Okay? And so believing in the name of Christ is important and it is often repeated. For example, in John chapter 3, John uses it. I just want to show it to you or I'll read it to you. You know what's in John chapter 3, of course. But listen to this. In John chapter 3, it says... In verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. I showed you what that meant Sunday, answered that. So that whosoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And so over and over again, believing in the name of Christ is an important, often New Testament theme. And especially here in this letter, in chapter 2, uh, verse 12, he says this, 1 John 2, 12. He says, I am writing you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for His name's sake. For His name's sake. 
uh, in chapter 4, verse 2, he says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh from God. And verse 15 it says, Whosoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. God, Jesus, Him, name, it's all interchangeable. It's speaking of Christ in the context in all that He is. It is the reason then that John wrote both his gospel and this first epistle. As I showed you at the beginning, John 20, 31, how to be saved. John, 1 John 5, 13, how to be certain of your salvation. Okay, got it? Good. That has to do with this word here. Who believes? As he says, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. All right? All right. Now, I want to read something to you from an old Puritan, okay, long time ago. And uh, so let me give this to you after I pull my little binder clip off. And it's this. While this command to believe certainly is directed... Now, are you listening? Say amen. While this command is to believe certainly is directed at those who have yet to trust in the saving work of Christ on the cross. Ladies and gentlemen, it is essential that all of you continue to allow the gospel to have bearing on your life. Last Sunday, or last Saturday morning, I preached for Abraham Thomas, our friend down in southern India. There were 139 devices connected to the phone or to the Zoom, and we were in five countries, including the U.S., and I taught them about preaching the gospel to themselves. And when I was done, Abraham immediately took what I said. He baptized it. And he, he said, see, we need to go out and preach the gospel to the world. They need it. And I had to interrupt him. I said, you didn't hear what I said. We all must preach the gospel continually to ourselves, that the curse is broken. You need that. I need that. Sinclair Ferguson, who probably to me is my most favorite preacher alive today. Y'all probably, maybe one or two of you even know who that is. He's a Scotsman. But anyway, Dr. Ferguson, Professor Ferguson, he says in his entire pastoral ministry over and over again, he, re, he, he said, if I summed up my whole pastoral ministry, it was teaching my church that God loved them and the assurance of their salvation and the victory they have in Christ. He said, and I mean, this man is a tenured professor of theology. He is sought all over the world. He is humble and kind, well-written author. All of this stuff, and great golf player too. And all of these things, I was like, and, I, and at first I was sitting there going, and I told this to a few of our guys. I said, how can a guy like him just have to be telling that to his people for 50 years? And then I'm saying, that's exactly what I've done for 20 uh, it's either there's a deficiency in my message or something or there's a deficiency in the people hearing it. But it can all be settled this way. You must always preach the gospel to yourself. Before you just get so convicted that you need to go share the gospel with somebody, you go practice it on yourself first. You need to remind yourself that you're saved by grace, not by works. Amen? That's your identity. That's good news, folks. That's not bad news. And so listen to this. This is written by a guy named Candlish, long time ago. This is another Scotsman. He says, keep on believing. Keep on believing. Continue to believe more and more. 
simply because you see and feel it more and more to be His commandment that you should believe on the name of the Son of God. This is the writings to those of us in faith for assurance. Keep believing on the name of the Son of God. Unbelief, if you who have believed, is aggravated disobedience. When you stop believing, you are doing an aggravated disobedience. And as such, it must be especially displeasing to God. It is His pleasure that His Son should be known by you, should be trusted by you, should be worshipped by you, should be loved by you and honored. It's His pleasure to have given you His Son as He Himself is honored when you honor Him. Listen, nothing lights me up more than when you talk good things about my kids. I can only imagine how God the Father feels when we talk about Jesus. Wouldn't you agree? And so here's the idea. You cannot displease the Father more than by dishonoring His Son, refusing to receive Him and rest upon Him. You dis we dishonor God when we refuse to rest on Jesus, whom God in His pleasure has given us. And so He says to this, rest upon Him, embrace Him, and hold Him fast, and place your reliance upon Him. Remember this, brother and friend. Do not deceive yourselves by imagining that there may be something rather gracious in your doubts and fear. And I'm like, finally, someone else said it. There is no virtue in you saying, I'm not perfect. There is no virtue in you saying, well, I'm just a poor sinner and I'll never... There's no virtue in that. God gave you His Son to lift the curse. And you are not the same. You have been vaccinated with Jesus and if you've been truly vaccinated, your old nature, though alive, is dead on arrival, has no power over and what you give, you have been made totally new. Amen? Amen. Come on. Amen. So you're unsettled and, and in your unassured frame, don't go about saying, I doubt and I have fears. There's no moral justification for that or virtue that you're somehow some super Christian because you're admitting that? No, you're admitting that you are dishonoring the very gift God has given you. And to quote Dana, the great theologian, faith it till you make it. You just keep going. We all ebb and flow. That's life. We all ebb and flow. Even Jesus and the body got tired. Jesus had to sleep. Jesus got tired of people. He had to go away. And He couldn't take Celexa or Duloxetine or, or anything like that or smoke a joint. He couldn't do any of that. And you know what they did? They kept coming to Him, which has a lot to do with these words here. I'm going to show you here in a moment. Because they kept coming to Jesus all the time, coming to Jesus. Why did they keep doing? And so here's the thing. Beware, He says, Candish says, Beware, lest God see in it only a low self-esteem of His Son, Jesus Christ, in your life because you choose, you choose the path of doubt and fear because you will not rest, you will not embrace, you will not receive, you will not hold Him fast. Whom the Father was pleased to give you to do all of that. Amen? And it's His pleasure, so do it. You say, I can't do it. That's what grace is for. Yeah, I'm not good enough. You'll never be good enough. You don't have to convince me of that. You'll never be good enough. But Jesus is. He did it for you. So a mark of genuine saving faith is this. Write this down. It is that level of confident trust in Christ that only grows deeper and deeper as time goes on. 
That's the mark of saving faith, that your, your confident trust in Him grows deeper and deeper the longer time goes on. And so again, and notice he, he says also in here, it talks about love. I don't need to tell you that. Moving on. It has been clear throughout the blessings of salvation and assurance are only, as it says in 1 John 5.13, for those who believe in the name of the Son of God. So the blessings of salvation and assurance are only for those who believe in the name of the Son of God. It's not for anyone else. God has guaranteed these blessings to Christians by giving them the Holy Spirit as a pledge. That's Ephesians 1.14. That's the down payment. That's the escrow. John's uncompromising presentation of truth is absolute. Let me tell you something. You all must have settled convictions in your heart about some things. And one of them is this. John completely has an uncompromising presentation of the truth and in absolute unqualified terms that the relentless attacks that are taking place from false teachers and the departure of false believers in chapter 2 verse 19 had shaken their readers. And John did then what I am doing for you now. John wrote them to encourage them not with what those people had done wrong or where they had done wrong or finding fault in their wrongdoing. He wrote them to remind them who they were and who they are and who you are is a matter of identity. It is a matter of identity and 1 John says those who believe in the name of the Son of God are of Christ. So what can man do to me? That is an absolute uncompromising position I hold and will not ever change it. There is nothing man can do to me. He can kill this body, but he cannot take my soul. Now, how can I be convinced of that? The same way He convinced those people. The Word. The Word of God. So you have to, you're just going to have to make a decision. You either believe it or you don't. And see, you can't believe part of it and not believe part of it. You either believe it all or you don't. That's it. You cannot believe part of it. And so like when I start the Song of Solomon, we're going to do the Song of Solomon in its literary, historical, grammatical role. That means I'm going to preach two sermons where I take you between the bedsheets of Solomon and that woman that he's with because it is not an allegory. You can use it as an allegory, but I'm going to preach it the way it was written, word for word, grammatically. It is the only book of the Bible that the church has censored trying to make it something it's not because they're uncomfortable with it. If 
But that's another sermon. We're not doing that tonight. The departure, listen to this. The apostle assured them that if they passed the doctrinal and practical test, which we're going to go through this whole text, they could know for certain that they have eternal life. So it's not that you could have a... And notice, know for certain is not assurance. Know for certain is security. Assurance is a feeling. Knowing is a fact. Okay? So I'm almost done with the exposition of this, and then I'm going to show you this. So look at this. In its most basic sense, he uses this term. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know, and here's how he ends, that you have eternal life. In the most basic sense, brothers and sisters, eternal life is living forever with God in heaven. This is Matthew 25, Mark chapter 10. But as noted in verse 11, look at verse 11. In 1 John 5, 11, look what it says. And this, and the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. There is no life apart from Christ. The devil comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but I have come to give you life and life more abundantly. It's why I am totally convinced, as I said Sunday, better days are coming. My old professor, Dr. Fish, said this too shall pass, this too shall pass. Better days are coming. Hard times bring about good men and women. And good men and women bring about good times. It's the good times that people start raising up bad men and women and bad men and women create hard times. 20 years since we had 9-11, we were together only so long, but you and I need to read history more carefully. 9-11 is not what drove this country to its knees. It was Enron and the collapse of the stock market because people could lose the building and loved ones, but when everybody lost their retirements, that was a whole nother matter. And what happened? You began to see the outcry for justice. And we have never recovered. We hit, and yet we have lived through some of the most economically prosperous times uh, just of recent, and you'll see all of that change very soon. And it'll start over again. And yet, are we going to learn from the past? But the beautiful thing is we have eternal life that began the moment we received the gift of faith. The moment. And we have life, eternal life forevermore. And that's what my hopes are set on. I know what's at the end of this road. It's glory. And that's what I'm looking at. Bill White told me a long time ago, you need to play long. You play long, you look long. People that make money in the stock market, play long not short. We play long. So watch this. This says the purpose of God's testimony. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and His life is in His Son. So the purpose of God's testimony is always demonstrated throughout Scripture in many ways through water, the blood, and the Spirit in the, so that the sinner might have eternal life. Now, now I'm going to deal with that when we get to it properly in many months from now. Eternal life involves much more, friends, than living forever in a chronological sense. The essence of eternal life is the believer... Now listen, here's what I want you to get. Eternal life is the believer's participation in the blessed everlasting life of Jesus. R write that down. 
Eternal life is the believer's participation in the blessed everlasting life of Jesus. Where is this found? Well, our writer writes it in his gospel. In John chapter 1, and I may actually start preaching the book of 1 John on Sunday mornings because it would just go perfectly with this. And, uh, but we'll see. I change my mind so often. Tomorrow I may be preaching the Book of Mormon. I don't know. Now listen, it, it's sitting up there on the pulpit. Brad brought it to me. He's like, hey, you want to read this? Oh, okay. Uh, John 1, 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Really? That stinks. That didn't sound right. It's not right. Ah, that is right. I'm, I noted it wrong. So here's the idea. No, it is right. In Him is life, and in Him is the light of men. Why? How does it come? Union with Christ. Sinclair Ferguson wrote a magnificent book entitled Union with Christ. It's based upon a book called The Christian's Marrow that was written years ago, uh, Union with Christ. Do you want to read something that will stretch your brain, grow your gray matter? That's one, or put you to sleep. It's a great book. Jesus defined His high priestly prayer to the Father. He says this in John 17, verse 3. This is, listen, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. John 17, 3. It is the life in the age to come, which believers will most wonderfully and fully experience the perfect, unending, glorious holiness and joy of heaven. And yet, the eternal life promised by God in the Old Testament and sought by the Jews of Jesus' day comes only to those who believe God's testimony and place their faith in His Son. That's why it is necessary over and over again to continue to preach the gospel to ourselves. Not because we need to preach it to ourselves to know we're saved. We need to preach it to ourselves over and over again because we are saved. It's good news. I mean, so you look at all the bad news that's going, well, go preach the gospel to yourself. That's good news. Right? Can I get an amen? Or is it just not good news anymore to you? Or is it just old news? I'm tell you what, the older you get and the closer you get to meeting Jesus, you're going to be asking me, Come tell me the old story again. I shouldn't have to. I told you to keep doing it. But okay, I will. Which one do you want to know? Do you want to know Alice in Wonderland? You know what Alice in Wonderland, when she came to the Cheshire Cat, do you remember what the Cheshire Cat asked her at the cross in the road? Who are you? It's a brilliant theological question that leads me now to the marker board. Who are you? Watch this. I got 10 minutes to do this. All right. The highest good, the highest good you can do in this life is do everything, be everything, commit everything, Observe everything that is Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, I don't really find, and maybe I'm wrong or blind to it or have a presupposition, but everywhere Jesus Christ went, people followed Him. 
He didn't have to go get them. They came to him. And this kind of dawned on me. I have been in a massive transformation these last few years in my own life. Weight, all this, mind, body, stuff. Uh, I've made some baby steps. But gotten to the place now where I've learned some things about myself and learned some things where I do some things. Why I do what I do and I don't do them anymore. So I used to go to, I go to Cracker Barrel and now I'm the pastor at Cracker Barrel and I sit at my table and I've gotten two counselees from the deal, out of the deal, and probably going to get a very cheap uh, wedding reception dinner out of the deal too, which is great. I deserve it. Uh, but I'll take it. And uh, I've spent enough there and drank enough of that coffee. But uh, nonetheless, and so they've said, we just want to make a table here called Pastor's Corner. And every time I go, they miss me. It's not because who I am. I never wanted this life. I never want to do that. But I'm going to tell you something. People will be drawn to you if you believe what Jesus says. And if you will do what Jesus says. And it is simply, he can take a messed up guy like me. And he can cause people to come to me like a moth will go to a light. Because we are lights in a dark world. And he can do it through any of us when we decide the curse is broken. The curse is broken. What I do does not change who I am. So I would tell the Cheshire cat, I am James, the blood-bought, born-again, Kurt, no longer curse, saved, ragamuffin of Jesus Christ. And a whole lot of other stuff. I probably wouldn't even make it that fancy. But most people can't say that because of this. They doubt their assurance. So let me show you a couple things. And here they are. Then I'll go do this stuff. I want you to write this down. Number one. Eternal security. Write down eternal security. Eternal security is what a believer is. They have eternal, when a, what a believer is, eternally saved from God's wrath as taught in the scripture. Eternal security says that a believer is eternally saved from God's wrath according to the scripture. And this is a fact based on Christ. That is eternal security. You cannot have assurance of faith until you have settled eternal security. Let me show you why. Assurance of faith is not what, but a when. W-H-E-N. It is when a believer has the proper confidence in God and His promises when a believer has the proper confidence in God and His promises, it is a feeling based on self. But what you understand of assurance has to do with what you believe about the testimony of God. You must have the security of the believer before the eternal security in the sense that this that God has said in His Word, He has eternally saved me as I have believed in Jesus Christ. Because I believe that, then my feelings will follow. But someone may tell you, I don't feel 
like I have assurance of salvation and say, well, what does the Bible say? Well, it says I am saved. I don't feel it. Well, there's, it's a non-issue. They don't feel it, but the Bible says it. Okay? Right? Makes sense? Well, if, a, a, go back to my theory, a believer will not feel threatened if said believer is certain of eternal salvation and lives for Jesus Christ, the sumum bonum, the ultimate good, in grace, which is identity, and truth, which is wisdom. Truth and wisdom. So watch this. Every one of us deal with these three things. Now, I wrote them up here to be a little bit funny, but these are real words. Homo economicus means rational. So write down rationality. You don't need to write down homo economicus. Just write down rationality or rational. You are rational beings. Rational. This one, homo emoticus, is your emotion. Your emotion. And homo identicus is your identity. This is the one that is getting everybody in trouble today. This is why everybody is tearing everybody up is this one, identity. You've heard the term identity politics? This is the deal. And you know why it is? Because we live in a world where folks don't believe that there's any absolute truth. You know that something is true. It's God's truth because the opposite of it is absolutely false. If it's anything else, it's conjecture. Okay? For example, the University of Texas is the greatest university that has ever existed since the dawn of humankind. Uh, okay. Well, I was, I, was waiting, I was waiting for an Aggie to say something because the, the T-sips in here are going, eh, eh. Well, if you say, that, that the, if you say this, A&M has never lost. They have just been outscored on the scoreboard. Huh? Who? Well, that is true. Uh, so, I mean, those things, though, don't have an absolute opposite. The UT thing does not, for sure. Uh, but uh, the, the point is, if it has an absolute opposite, then it is God's truth. You know it's true, because any other alternative is false. All right? So we don't live in a world that says there's truth. Well, yes, there is. We have God's truth. And in, in based on that, you want to get your identity. So here's the thing. Homo economicus is simply this idea. It is the idea of reality, of rational. People are rational actors. We're all rational actors, and, but we all do the same thing. It doesn't matter. You can deny this. You're not being honest with yourself. We all do everything with ourselves in mind first. We do what is best for ourselves first, and we want it as efficiently we, as we can get it. And if it works out that it benefits someone else, that's okay. That's good too. That's a win-win just so long as I get what I'm interested in. It's my money and I want it now, said J.G. Wentworth. Right? You got it? Okay. So this is, a, this is a human nature thing. Homo emoticus is the idea of emotions. It means this is beyond our ration. So in this, in our, in our rationale, so this is saying we reason, we rationalize things to get what we want in the most expedient way. Okay? 
This is emotion beyond reason, and here's what happens. This is, what is, this is the domain that animates your attitudes and your actions and your thoughts. Okay, Your attitudes, your actions, and your thoughts are identified right here in these emotions. And you can either use emotions good, constructively, or badly. So I want you to write this down. Emotions are a gauge. They are not a guide. They do not tell you what to do. They're a gauge of what is happening inside of you. Emotions are a gauge. They are not a guide. And this last one is identity. This is the thing that has, this is, this is I think, mo the most important thing. All human beings, all human beings seek meaning in their existence. All of you in here seek meaning in your existence. Every one of you. You say, I've never even thought about it. Yes, you do. Whether it's the way you bake a cake, the way you gas a car, the way you uh, fix this or do that or speak or whatever. What you watch, what you listen to, anything like that, it has to do with seeking meaning. And so existence is tied to identity. Your existence in this world is tied to identity. Now you're starting to probably see where this is going. Your identity is tied to your existence along, listen, along with your reasoning and your emotion. So homo identicus, your identity is tied to your rationale and your emotions. Okay? It's beautifully displayed in when you give a man and a woman the same problem and you watch them try to solve it. You will see reason, emotion, and identity come about in about five minutes. Right? Think about it. I don't want to explain it. So what does that mean? I, ex existing is tied to identity. It says who you are, who you are, what you hold is important, and how you conceive meaning in your life. Who you are, what you hold important, and how you conceive meaning in your life, along with your reason and emotion, ready, determines when, where, and how you will feel threatened. My theory is a believer will not feel threatened if said believer is certain of eternal salvation and lives for Jesus Christ, the summum bonum, in grace, which is identity, and truth, which is wisdom. See, the reason people get into emotional conflicts, all you have to do is turn on CNN the old time long ago and watch Crossfire. That's where they perfected all that they do today. Or you could watch Hannity and Combs and they would go after each other because they would make it an emotional thing that threatened their identity. And now you can turn it on tonight. You can, with some people you can say Donald Trump. With some people you can say Barack Obama. With some people you can say Lyndon Johnson or Joe Biden and absolutely 
unhinge the conversation because it is now threatening their identity. Mention the vaccine, don't get the vaccine. Mention global warming, the spotted owl, power lines. I thought of another one the other day that we've survived. Um, all of these things. Oh, the Tylenol scare, Halloween with razor blades in the candy bars. I mean, when I was a child, you took all of your candy to the local Houston hospital and you had it x-rayed for crying out loud so that you know, so we just ate irradiated Hershey bars. And today, that's wrong. Why would you do that? Huh? Well, looks like you ate quite a bit. You said low intelligence? Oh, I'm sorry. You really, okay. So the point is, is that we go through all that. I'm not making fun of it, but I want you to understand, I don't derive my identity whether or not you like me because I choose or choose not to wear Make America Great Again. Because that's not my identity. I'm not threatened by that. But many of you are. What's the difference? It's because you don't know who you are. And that's what he writes. I am writing these things that you may know for certain. So here's the idea. If I can help you understand where you feel threatened, and let's say you're in an emotional conflict and you need somebody to negotiate, this comes from emotional conflict resolution. This is negotiating with non-negotiables. This is, there is, everything can be negotiated. Everything. The moment you say it cannot be, it cannot be. Everything can be negotiated. But everything boils down to this. If I threaten your identity, or I don't even have to threaten it, but you feel threatened in your identity, then you are going to not be able to function rationally or emotionally. And that's why emotional, that is why when you see these fussing and fightings on the TV, and if that's just so wrong, they shouldn't do it, and all of a sudden you get caught, that's because it's threatening your identity. That's the emotive thing that's happening. So it makes us homo stupidicus. Okay? So that's the point. So the first part is grace, which, is, which, or, which grace is identity. You are in grace. You have been treated with what you don't deserve. So it is incumbent upon us to treat people that way. That's why people always came to Jesus. Whether they were the Pharisees, the tax collectors, the religious elites, the people trying to trouble Him, the lost people, the disciples, the handout people, all of them, they all, you know, those disciples, they did, all oh, these people are just falling because they want something to eat. Well, so are you. But see, Jesus didn't think that way. He said, bring me what you have and I'll multiply it. He's the same principle works in us. Because he had the, we, it's Christ in us, the hope of glory. Not us in Christ, the hope of glory. It's Christ in us, the hope of glory. So first thing is grace is identity. Here's the other part is wisdom. This won't take near as long. Let me tell you about wisdom. I want you to write this down very carefully and clearly. Here it is. Wisdom means to identify what is or is not under my control. To be wise is to identify, is to identify what is or is not under my control. This is going to be liberating, I hope, for us. So here's the thing. You can turn the air on. Here's the thing. Watch this. Listen. Where do you look 
for good and evil. Where do you look for good and evil? If your life is to be a life that's in the assurance of Christ, living for Him, the highest goods, the sumum bonum, then where do you look for good and evil? Well, I can tell you, all I got to do is open the paper. I can turn on the television. I listen to the radio. I can tell you right now where I can find evil, and I don't know really where I can find any good either. Well, guess what? That's not wise. Because here's the thing. Follow the logic. To identify what is or is not under my control is simply this. I cannot control what is beyond myself. Write down the word externals. I cannot control what they teach in a college classroom. I can't control it. I cannot control what they do in Congress. I cannot control it. I cannot control what a person thinks of me because I preach too long. I can't control it. There is nothing I can do. I cannot control the way Mary Jo feels about me when I eat a Twinkie, which I have not had one. I cannot control that. Those are externals. Those are things beyond my control. I cannot control the news. I can't control the FDA. I can't control the CDC. I can't control all of these things. I can't control any of it. It's beyond my control. It's external. So I, therefore, why do I want to look for good and evil beyond that which I cannot control? So there's a place to look for good and evil in that which I can control, and that's me. Do you notice that the Bible tells us that we've been given a spirit of them control? doesn't say that. You've been given a spirit of controlling them. No, it says you've been given a spirit of self-control. This book is written to you, this epistle is written to you for this purpose, for you to know who you are. And so here it is. Where do I look for good and evil? The first place to look for it's in myself. The second place to look for it is in myself. And the third place to look for it is in myself. It's to look for good and evil because it is only I that can control me. I know I joke that Kelly controls me, but she will tell you that since she's sitting here, she'll say, no, I don't. He says, I'm the neck. Uh -uh. I only can control me. I can only control the choices that are my own. So here's what I need to do. Equipped with the knowledge of who I belong to as a, as a secure believer who has everlasting life and thus the feeling of it, assurance based on the said fact of Scripture, then I only need to do three things. And here they are. I just need to know, we're talking about wisdom, what I ought to choose. It's not really your business to tell me what I ought to choose. Ultimately, it's you have to choose what you ought to choose, right? We help each other. But you're responsible, and I'm responsible, so what I ought to choose. Number two, what I ought to be aware of. What I ought to be aware of. And number three, what is indifference? It is, it, I am indifferent to the idea. I would love to be teaching to six, seven, eight hundred people right now who gave a $15,000 offering at the end of the service. That'd be wonderful. You know but I don't have to have it. That's a prefer I'm indifferent to that. I'd much rather have you. A few more folks need to be here, but I'd rather have you. And uh, I have a, you know, I'd like to really have a brand new, the top of the line Cadillac, the $140,000 Cadillac uh, Escalade or whatever they call that thing. Um, that, 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 what, Escalade? That's what I want. 
That's a preferred, it's still a Chevy, and that's okay, but I want one. And I want a jet, too. But that's a preferred indifference. And I want someone else to pay for it. Okay? There, Robert. That's right. And you know what? And you're going to have to tithe on it if you pay for it. No, mm -mm, no, it's not. It, no, it's a preferred indifference. I would love to eat pies all the time and they not affect me. It's a preferred indifference. Okay? So the idea is what, what I ought to choose. What informs me as a believer what I ought to choose? The Scripture. The Word. And your choices will show whether you're wise or not. If you're choosing that. What I ought to be aware of and what is indifferent. And so, between, so let me give you this little trick here. Everybody has wisdom. And here's the trick. The space between the stimulus, whatever stimulates you, your desire, whatever, the space between the stimulus, the news article, the whatever it is, and your response to it, the space between the stimulus and your response is the place where you want to use wisdom. For some folks, there is no space. Okay? Uh, I, there's been so many things happen in the news, I can't even think of hardly anything. You know, so-and-so made a phone call and, oh, he's guilty, that's it. No, no space between the stimulus and the reaction. But that's the space. That space is where you ask these questions. What ought I to choose? What do I need to be aware of? And what am I to be indifferent of? That's where you seek the scripture. That's where you trust your emotions, your reason, and your identity is in that place. And so let me show you this about wisdom. Wisdom leads to works, not words. Wisdom is not demonstrated in what you say. It is demonstrated in how you live. That is the truth. Now, tie this all together with this word logic. The word logic is not wisdom, but just write this down. Logic defends us from bad reasoning. Logic defends us from bad reasoning. So, let me tie this all together. Here it is. You are told in the Gospel of John how to believe and be saved. In the first epistle of John, you are told as a believer you can be certain of your eternal life. You can be certain of your salvation. That should change every aspect of your life, rationally, emotionally, and in your identification. Everything. Because your identity is a person in Christ, is not, is a person in grace. You know, people say, I'm a Christian. Well, are you a person in grace? Well, I'm trying to get there. A person in grace is your identity. So that means when I look at all this junk that comes through the tube, the idiot box, and all these things that I hear and all that stuff, I can just sit back and say, wait a minute. I know who I am, and then I can allow wisdom to work. So I get the stimulus. Stimu well, I didn't get the stimulus, the stimuli. I'd love to have gotten the stimulus, but the stimuli. And then I can sit back 
and I can allow reason to work. I think there's an old geezer in here one. Years ago, I canceled a trip to Germany that did me a lot of harm because I canceled it because I got mad. And he said, you need to wait three days before you make a decision like that again. As the visa geezer. And, and the thing is, I did not, I did not allow wisdom. I, I, I canceled my trip, and I, I was stimulated, and I immediately moved. I demonstrated I'm a fool. But see, if, I, if, I, if, if my theory is correct, a believer will not feel threatened. Whether you feel threatened, see, and I'm going to show you all this another time, it's tribalism. A believer will not feel threatened if said believer is certain of eternal salvation and lives for Jesus Christ in grace and truth, both in what? In, in identity and in wisdom. Okay? So here's the concluding remarks. Here's what I'd like you to take away from our text. These things I have, and then I will explain these two to you. One person knows these. If the other person knows them, I'll have you raise your hand, and then I will give you the answer. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Here it is. Eternal life is now and forever. Eternal life is now and forever. To know Jesus Christ is now and forever. Who Himself is eternal life, it says in 1 John 5, 20, and to share in His life. Jesus Christ is eternal life. It says right here. It says, And we know that the Son of God has come and He has given us understanding so that we, know him, that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ, this is true God and eternal life. This is the God and eternal life. Okay? Second of all, now it is a present possession, not merely a future hope. Though it is not fully manifested in this life, we have eternal life now. We are living eternal life right now. We have it. It is a present position and possession. In the future, there will be a day in the future when eternal life of believers already that they already profess will no longer be incarcerated by a sinful fallen flesh. And on that glorious day, we will experience the adoption of sons and the redemptions of our bodies. And God said, Amen to that. And then forever, forever is simply this, then the glory of eternal life, which is the power, which is the power of the Godhead, the Trinity, as it will have its full working through us, and we will shine, and they will shine through us in our unclouded glory in our mortal bodies in heaven. Amen.